Tēnā koutou no mai hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tay. Today, more than 400,000 Kiwi workers are receiving the wage subsidy extension, but the support is about to end. So what happens next? What are your forecasts telling you about the number of jobs that might be lost? Look, it is extremely difficult to be able to get that down to particular numbers. You must have some well, projection. Then, has Labor delivered for Māori, or can the Māori party win a seat and get back into Parliament? They spell all this rubbish and not about not getting gains and tinoranga tiratanga. There's no tinoranga tiratanga here. You come down here, you bow to the Speaker. It's not a tinoranga tiratanga environment. It's an environment where you've got to get the best deal. We will have that story shortly. The post-lockdown bounce back has been better than expected, with many economists now revising their numbers for growth and unemployment. But there is deep concern the worst may be yet to come as government support programmes end and the impact of our closed border really starts to bite. The wage subsidy extension is due to expire on September 1st in just a month's time. So when I sat down with Finance Minister Grant Robertson, I asked him what will happen next? Well, uh, we've got to be, you know, take a perspective here. On the first wage subsidy, we saw about 1.7 million New Zealanders being supported through that. The extension has around 400,000 New Zealanders. So we're narrowing down the number of people. But also, the wage subsidy extension hasn't been taken up to the extent that we thought it may have been. That's actually a positive sign because it means that the, the head start that the New Zealand economy has had from coming out of level one a bit earlier is flowing through. Uh, we obviously know that there will be some jobs that won't be able to be retained. That's why we've put in place the COVID income relief payment for those people. So they actually now go on to 12 weeks of payment at the equivalent of the wage subsidy scheme. And then we start to move to more targeted support for particular sectors, for example, the tourism sector. I will ask you about that um, targeted support for the tourism sector in, in just a moment. But you have more than 400,000 people still on the wage subsidy extension. What are your forecasts telling you about the number of jobs that might be lost? Look, it is extremely difficult to be able to get that down to particular numbers. You must have some well, projections. I, I certainly don't. I certainly think that the vast bulk of those people will continue in work. Uh, even though their businesses have taken the wage subsidy extension on, we have seen trading being far ahead of where people thought. So it's a recognition and a, a reflection of the fact that things have been tough, but I still expect the vast bulk of those people to so what's the vast bulk? If we have 437,000, which are the latest numbers from mid-July on the wage subsidy extension, mm. how many jobs do you think will be lost? How many will stay on? What is the vast bulk? Look, it is very hard to but say. What do your projections tell well, you? You well, must no, have projections. Well, this, we, we have the projections that were in the budget, and you would have seen those that would have seen unemployment pushing up towards the you know the high 200. But you have thousands. you have renewed figures. I mean, what are your numbers as of today? today? <laughs> well, we don't publish the full forecast until the end of August, and as the Minister of Finance, I have to be a bit boring about that because that is they're the official figures. What we can say is that many of those businesses who are in receipt of the wage subsidy extension have been able to trade and do relatively well through June and July. So I expect those people will keep their staff on. There will, however, be some businesses where they won't be able to keep all of their staff on. We've recognised that, and that's why we put in place the COVID income relief payment. I know that economists have been pleasantly surprised with the state of the economy at this point, given the forecasts of six months ago or five months ago, would it be reasonable to expect that three-quarters of the people who are receiving the wage subsidy at the moment will 
keep their jobs? Look, that's the kind of thing we would hope for, Jack, but I'm reluctant, as you can tell, to be able to give you a specific number. because Clarity. Like, well, but, <laughs> but, but no, at this time in our history, that level of clarity and certainty, we're all striving for mm. it, but the reality of COVID-19 and its impacts, it makes those sorts of forecasts very hard to judge. What we do know is that the business environment has been better because we've had a head start on other countries of coming out of lockdown, that people are able to, in fact, rehire staff, and we're even seeing companies that laid people off rehiring people in. But there will be some, particularly in those more exposed sectors like tourism mm. or international education, where they will have reset their businesses, and unfortunately there will be job losses. Was the, was the extension to the wage subsidy an effort to hold out for a trans-Tasman bubble? What, what role did that bubble play in that decision? Uh, not a particularly important one, actually. It was much more about the fact that we recognised that the ramping up of business was going to take a bit longer. I've, I've often mm. said the economy is more like an oven than a light switch. If you turn it off, it takes a while to warm back up mm. again. So the extension of the wage subsidy scheme was a recognition that for some industries, retail, hospitality, tourism, it would take longer. Of course, the Trans-Tasman bubble would have been great in terms of that, but actually that wasn't the determining factor. I, I'm just thinking of the likes of the, you know, the sorts of businesses that are you know, have suffered more than a 40% reduction in revenue year on year and, and therefore qualify for the extension. You think of mum and dad tourism businesses in the Bay of Islands, for example, that might have been relying on a trans-Tasman bubble to get a few more mm. people through the door. That bubble doesn't look like it's going to eventuate any time soon. Uh, no, it doesn't. And obviously the most important thing for New Zealand is to protect the gains that we've made. And so therefore we're going to move very carefully and cautiously there. Mm. Those businesses in the Bay of Islands have had a really Really good run with the school holiday season. Um, there are still New Zealanders travelling domestically and many of those businesses have been working to reorientate mm. their business. So they may well have laid a few staff off and that's mm. unfortunate for those people but the businesses themselves have been making use of the small business cash flow scheme uh, loan scheme. They've been making use of the support that they can get from things like the tourism packages and therefore we hope that they're going to be able to work through this. And you are trying to protect the tourism industry uh, more than 120 uh, businesses supported under this extension. So, so instead of um, under this targeted package you, you've just announced, so instead of extending the wage subsidy, you are now narrowing down into, into specifically targeted industries. Yeah, there's some very obviously exposed sectors. Tourism's one, international education's another, and we made some announcements about funding for mm. them. What we're trying to do here in the tourism sector is target the strategic businesses so that when we can have international tourists return, we can get going more quickly. So this enables them to survive. They may not operate at the level that they were, but they can keep core staff, they can keep businesses going that in turn other businesses rely on within particular regions. How long can you afford to sustain these businesses? You know, this is this is something we've been talking carefully with them about. So this is a mixture of funding here of grants mm. and loans. And so that enables the business to say, well, yep, we can keep going perhaps through to the summer season to see how we go there. And if we've got some confidence about the business, perhaps take on a loan to bridge financing through from there. But do you have any idea when we're going to be able to have international tourists? Well, this is the thing. There is so much uncertainty, mm. Jack, and I absolutely get everyone in New Zealand including me, wants more certainty. But this virus is growing, not slowing internationally. And we only need to watch you know, the news every night to see what's happening in Melbourne and know we must protect the gains that we've got. Are we in recession now? Um, well, the official figures won't come out, but everybody knows that we will be. Um, a technical recession is two quarters of negative mm. growth. There, of course, will be negative growth in the June quarter. The good news 
is, most economists are saying it'll be better than what was forecast. But, yeah, we are in a one-in-100-year event. From the data you have available and the forecasts you have seen, when are you expecting the worst of the economic impacts to be felt? Well, certainly in terms of that, the projections are that the June quarter will be worse and in September and December we'll begin to come out of that. But again, what you have to watch out for here is the international environment. So our domestic yeah. economy will show that trajectory of improvement. Unfortunately, the picture coming from the international agencies is the opposite direction for the right. rest of the world. So that means there'll still be pressure on the New Zealand economy and the domestic economy right. will still and, be right. I mean, to, well, to a significant degree, we are effectively at the at the whim of of uh, the international economy. So, uh, what are you expecting for the first quarters of next year? Are things going to get worse before they get significantly better? Certainly, in terms of the forecasts of the IMF and the OECD, the answer to that question, unfortunately, is yes. The good news for New Zealand within mm. that is that our exports are holding up relatively well. So, while we're not seeing the people come into New Zealand, mm. we are seeing our goods. Going out. So if you look at things like kiwi fruit, yeah. dairy, they're holding up really, really well. So on that score, we're doing okay. But unfortunately, overall demand internationally is under three. So in plain language, then, when you consider the international situation, you consider our domestic situation, for people watching this right now, are things going to be tougher in the first half of next year than they are right now in New Zealand? Um, it'll probably balance out, to be honest, to be about where we are, but that will depend a right. lot on, the pro on what happens with the virus, which, of course, as we know, is unpredictable. You've talked a lot about getting the so-called shovel-ready projects up and running, but construction and infrastructure leaders whom we've spoken to have been frustrated by the slow pace. What do you put that down to? Oh, look, this is a sector that, that needs long lead times, and I absolutely understand that. I think it's really important, though, to realise that the shovel-ready projects are only part of what we're doing when it comes to infrastructure. So we've got the New Zealand Upgrade Programme, yep. we've got the Big State House Building Programme. These projects are going out, but, Jack, you would be the first to ask me questions if we were funding projects we hadn't done due diligence on. That's what we're doing here. Relatively speaking, compared to how we approve projects normally, we're moving very quickly, we're working with the sector and we'll have the vast bulk of those projects announced by the end of next week. OK. Well, I mean, this is the criticism, though, isn't it, that, that you are perhaps drip-feeding these projects to suit, your, to suit your election campaign. I want to read you a quote from Civil Contractors New Zealand CEO Peter Silcock. He says, We know the work is out there, but unless we know where, what, and most importantly, when projects will start, contractors are left totally in the dark. They will have no choice but to put workers off or face the risk of companies going under. You've announced about 1.16 billion uh, of those um, so-called shovel-ready projects, which means there's still about one and a half billion to announce. Will those be announced by the end of next week? One and a half billion worth? Yeah, it's, it's about 2.6 we're putting out. In We've total? Got, yeah, yeah, we're putting a $400 million buffer in there for, for contingencies. But yes, the vast bulk of those will be announced by you know the end of next week. The reality here is that there is a good pipeline of work there at mm. the moment, and Peter and others have been working closely with the government over the last few months around the New Zealand Upgrade Programme, around our state house building program. This $3 billion or $2.6 billion of shovel-ready projects adds on to that. Mm. But there's an absolute recognition here. Local government, central government, private sector have got to work together here to make sure we're giving some certainty for the construction industry. That's what we're doing. Uh, there is continued pressure from, from some parts of the business sector regarding our border plan, wanting to get some workers back into the country. Do you see any loosening of our border restrictions 
before a vaccine is made available? Well, what we're trying to do constantly is ensure that we get the balance right here. The border restrictions are absolutely critical to yeah. New Zealand's safety and the well-being of all New Zealanders. Within uh, what we're doing already, we have economic uh, uh, quotas for people coming in. We want to continue to develop that, make sure that we've got a robust framework in place. So we've seen it with the likes of the avatar workers yeah. and so on coming to New Zealand. We will but keep But they have that. to show a significant economic benefit to New Zealand, though. I'm talking about you know businesses that might be looking at having one or two workers come in from overseas, who, who have work visas to work in New Zealand, who just want to get back in the country but aren't able to at the moment. So uh, do we have to wait until a vaccine is available or is, it, is there the potential they can come and see? Not for someone with a work visa, and I think we've tried to be really clear about that. We've got this large number of returning New Zealand citizens mm. and residents. The next cab off the rank, to use the phrase the Prime Minister has used, are people with work visas who happen to be right. in other parts of the world. So, yes, we want to move towards... Any idea when that will happen? Well, as we build our capacity in terms of isolation facilities, as we get confident about the way that mm. we can manage the flow of people, then we can bring more of those people back in here. So, so when? Clarity, clarity. <laughs> Oh, no, well, that's, it's already beginning to happen. I yeah. mean, we were already seeing people come in who are doing economically significant jobs that can't be done elsewhere. But there's a really important point here, Jack, which is that there are more New Zealanders out of work, and we need to be working with industries on ensuring that they are employing New Zealanders if they are available. That has to be a part of all of our thinking, along with the expertise coming in from offshore. OK, so will that influence your decision as to when you allow those people who, who have a right to work in New Zealand and be in New Zealand but currently don't meet the economic standards under your current provision? The, the primary thing here is capacity in our isolation right. facilities. We're growing that all the time and we want to see people who have a right to work and live here come back. OK, here. so any time frame though? Like we're talking six months? Are we talking oh, well, a year? We're certainly talking within the coming months, absolutely. OK. Um, I know you're not going to release it for us this morning, <laughs> but when will you release your tax policy? Oh, we'll do that uh, very soon. I mean, obviously, we're coming towards the end of the parliamentary term. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sitting here to you talking today as the, as the Minister of Finance. Once we get through the next week or two, we'll release our tax policy, along with a number of other policies, Jack. But I think the really important thing to remember here is our focus as a government has been on COVID-19 response and recovery. That will continue to be the focus of Labor and the campaign. And we have outlined billions of dollars worth of spending that we've now got to fulfil. That will be the bulk of what we will be campaigning on. Can you rule out tax increases? <laughs> I'm not going to do the ruling in and ruling out game today. Um, we will release a tax policy that New Zealanders can understand in plenty of time before they vote. OK, can you finish the sentence for me? We had a bit of fun with Marama Davidson last week. She said, tax is love, which I think was a Shamabil Jakob line originally. <laughs> tax is... Tax is what we all pay to ensure that we share in the benefits of living in this wonderful country. Well, that's not going to fit on a bumper sticker. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Finance Minister Grant Robinson, tēnā Next, as China cracks down on dissidents in Hong Kong, how should our government manage the relationship with our biggest trading partner? And overseas, we've seen the rise of online campaigns to distort information and influence voters. We speak with an expert who says the same thing could happen here. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. China has accused New Zealand of gross interference after the government suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong. 
New Zealand is the latest country to review its relationship with Hong Kong after China passed a controversial new security law for the former British colony. Economist Rodney Jones from Wigram Capital Advisors has been monitoring the developments closely and is with us this morning. Tina Quid. I just wanted to pick up on that Grant Robertson interview. So he yeah. suggested we will be in the same place economically in the first two quarters of next year, that a strong domestic economy will be offset by a weak uh, international yeah. economy. That is perhaps more optimistic than some economists have been have been expecting. Where, where do you see things going? Well, we don't know. So, yes, as you said, trade has held up really well. This is not one of our big trade sharks, but we've lost tourism. And then we don't know what's the impact of unemployment on domestic spending. That's the un mm. uncertainty. So the economy is smaller than it was, but unemployment will be much higher. And what's the impact of that on domestic spending? Is this burst we're seeing now sustainable as we head into the summer? Will the economy start to stutter a bit? And we have seen some alarming figures in terms of GDP from the US and Europe in the last few days. Well, well that's the thing. Our, our numbers don't work. That's mm. a, you know, when an economy's down 10% and a quarter, you know, close to 40% annualised, how do you think about that? How do you process that? And how accurate is the data when you're getting these sorts of big drops? You have been closely tracking the coronavirus spread around the world. Is there a sense that more countries are getting on top of COVID-19? Uh, it's actually mixed. So the US is looking a little bit bad. I mean, when we don't pay attention to this virus, it spreads rapidly. When people pay attention and become fearful, it's, it slows down. So the US has slowed down, although we had 70,000 yesterday. We'll see what the numbers are today shortly. So that's still a big base of infections from which you can go higher. I mean, mm. it is possible we go up towards 100,000. We'll see. And, but the problem right now is that Europe, as they go into their summer and August is the big month, it's really starting to pick up again in Europe. In places such as India, for example, it's are just recording relentless. record numbers. India is just relentless. We'll go to 100,000 cases a day in India. It, it's just beyond our comprehension. It's a good time to be in New Zealand. Yes. Exactly. Hong Kong um, has just delayed its elections for a yeah. year, blaming the virus. What did you make of that? Uh, you know, at the start with the national security law, there was an argument saying that the national security law, you know, they're obligated under the original agreement, under the basic law, to have some security legislation. They didn't do that. Maybe this was just China doing that. But what we're seeing instead is a breathtaking advance by China into, into Hong Kong. This is really becoming direct rule of Hong Kong from Beijing. Um, and in a time frame that um, no one just really expected. Just yeah. breathtaking. And the way they're deploying the national security law as well. What do you put that time frame down to? I think the pandemic, you've, you've got the window of the US elections. Mm -hmm. So in all probability by January 20th, we have a different US president. And, you know, you have this talk that came out from Bolton's book that Trump actually endorsed the camps in the West for, 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 for Uyghurs in, in converse, private conversations with Xi. So I think China's moving as fast as they can while Trump is president and while the pandemic keeps the globe focused on that. I mean, essentially, you are suggesting that... Um for want of a better term, China is, is, is playing up in the same way that people have suggested um, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talking about annexing the West Bank before the US elections in November might be doing the same thing. There's an opportunity perhaps. For the there's a, there's a window to, to yeah. move forward and then those gains are entrenched. Yeah. Um, do you think New Zealand is justified in suspending its extradition treaty? With Hong Kong? Well, oh, well, the way to think about that, could the New Zealand government, could Crown Law go into the New Zealand High Court and argue that someone should be extradited to Hong Kong now? So on Friday night, we had a 16-year-old arrested for a social media post 
on national security law and could be facing life imprisonment. Would the New Zealand government extradite a 16-year-old to Hong Kong under the national security law? It's obvious we wouldn't, so why have the agreement? Some strong words from uh, China's representative in New Zealand, though. Yeah, Beijing has talking points, and I think we should be... It's what's good in, in, in New Zealand is this year is we haven't had those kind of wolf warrior mm. type responses. I mean, the role of the ambassador is to express Beijing's view, and in doing that, she's expressing Beijing's view. But in reality, it's a New Zealand issue over whether the New Zealand government can go into the High Court to extradite someone. There's no way a New Zealand judge right. or the Court of Final Appeal would... would, would Prove that. But obviously this has upset China. How, how would New Zealand's decision to suspend that extradition treaty affect our greater relationship? Well, uh, I mean, the word that's been used to describe it now is mature, because we, and, and it has to be, because we have diverging interests. It's not in New Zealand's interest for Hong Kong to come under direct rule from Beijing, and yet that is what has happened. And that is China's right, sovereign right, to do as they wish, but it's not in our interests. And so our interests are diverging. And, and for us to articulate that is not interference, it's merely stating the facts. What do you make of claims that sabotage may have been at play in the crash in which oh. two Chinese men were, were killed recently? They, they were on their way to petition the government over the issue of um, the CCP political interference in New Zealand. Uh, this was a tragic, tragic, tragic accident. And we know New Zealand roads are dangerous and we know too many good people die on New Zealand roads. And, and these two men and the third who was injured, you know, I had met Shi Wei Guo and Freeman Yu, I know reasonably well, you know, were really good people. Um, and so, it, 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 but the point is that this is about, um, it's not thinking in terms of sabotage, but thinking about their fear. Clearly it wasn't sabotage, clearly it was a tragic accident. Mm -hmm. But the point that it even came up reflects the fear that parts of the Chinese community live with. And the, the Chinese community in New Zealand that lives with that fear are those who have come to New Zealand looking for political freedom, for religious freedom. Um, Xi Wei Guo was a Christ Christian. He wanted to express his religious beliefs here freely. They came to New Zealand seeking that freedom. And yet they encouraged... So an event I think that impacted on both Freeman and, and Wei Guo was when AUT, a year ago, June 4th, the 30th anniversary, cancelled the room they were going to use for their group of friends to get together and commemorate Tiananmen mm. 30 years ago. And, and it turned out when, when the OAE was used that that was AUT's vice chancellor was acting in cahoots with the consulate. And so that's what brings, you know, that's what brings fear. Let me ask this, are, are Chinese dissidents safe in New Zealand? Yes, they are safe, but they don't feel safe. And that's because we act in ways that make them feel unsafe in the way that we don't articulate our beliefs, emphasise that we're a democracy, that we have freedom. And we don't act without fear. We're afraid of what China may do on trade. Mm. And so we act fearfully and they detect that fear. When we consider the greater New Zealand relationship with China at, at this time of <laughs> increasing tension, what do you make of, of the role that Helen Clark will be playing for the WHO? Yeah. Um, I, I kind of feel now is a time small countries should keep their heads down, that this is a clash of the giants, if you like, and we have very different interests. We have an independent foreign policy. And the problem is, is I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that because Helen Clark is, you know, a very successful former New Zealand Prime Minister, and it's going to be hard to keep the New Zealand name 
out of it and China doesn't want to share information. Each day we add up all the, you know, monitor the pandemic daily, except in China, because they don't meet the reporting standards that everyone else uses. They are not reporting their numbers on the same basis. So should Helen Clark not have accepted that role? I think it may have been better to... Uh, I, I, it's just impossible. It, it's where angels fear to tread. Mm. It, it's how you're going to get a result there that really works for everybody. Yeah. That's very interesting. One final question. What do you make of the fact uh, that Labour MP Raymond Huo and Nationals Dr Yang Jian have both decided to stand down at this election? Oh, I've been quite public, um, particularly on Dr Yang, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good step. But what it leaves us short of is representation from the Chinese community. And we need Chinese representation that reflects the diversity of the Chinese community. Yeah. OK, thank you, Rodney. It's always so good to speak. Rodney Jones from Google Capital. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us, q and at tvnz.co.nz. There is plenty to pick up on with our panel next. There they are, including this week's political polls. And then, a little later, do you trust what you read online? As we get closer to the election, experts suggest New Zealand is actually a likely target for foreign interference. Hokimaya Noor, welcome back to Q&A. Time now for our panel. Ella Henry is an Associate Professor and Director of Māori Advancement at the AUT Faculty of Business, Economics and Law. And Ben Thomas is a PR consultant and former national political staffer. Tēnā kōrua. Kia ora. Great to Kia see you on Q&A. I want to begin uh, by picking up on that interview with Grant Robertson this morning. Ben, is the government doing enough to shore up concerns about what comes next? What comes after the wage subsidy extension ends at the beginning of next month? So they're putting a lot of stock in that uh, essentially COVID benefit for people who lose their jobs, which essentially uh, prolongs the wage subsidy for those people. But look, I think there is a bit of denial out there. The economy seems to be running pretty strongly. Uh, there's a lot of people out in bars and restaurants. Um, and I don't think people have sort of fully priced in what's going to be happening around September when that wage subsidy runs out, when a lot of businesses that have been sort of hoping for a miracle or hoping for the trade bubble, um, you know, admit reality. What sense do you get, Ella? Are things from an economic perspective going to get worse before they get better? Um, I mean, I accept, I think we all do, that we're going into a period of recession. Mm. And whether that recession becomes a fully-fledged depression like the one of the 20s and 30s, um, we're going to have to wait and see. But, but no matter how we grow our domestic economy, our major customers are still in turmoil. And so it, we're in a very fragile economic state, I mean, whatever fr happens. Frankly, the good thing is that China needs food, right? China, they, they still need food, and so, so that part of our export economy is, is, is likely to do OK in the coming months. But you just look at the GDP figures out of the UK, uh, out of uh, Europe and the US over the last couple of weeks, and clearly um, things on the international scene are terrible. It, the debate is really whether or not we can, we can try and cancel that out with a really strong domestic... We survived the last depression 100 years ago yeah. as a stronger nation and I think that team of 5 million um, brand is going to help but it, things that I think are going to get worse yeah. before they get better. The, the most important thing is what Grant Robertson was touching on at the end of the interview which is scaling up quarantine. Uh, we can't just become one of those island na islands where people shoot bows and arrows at passing ships and helicopters. Uh, we do need people to come in, both returning New Zealanders uh, skilled returning New Zealanders 
and also overseas workers. You know, overseas workers, uh, despite a little bit of what Ro uh, Robertson was saying, actually bring jobs with them. You know, they unlock these projects, these shovel-ready projects that we need to get going. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he says that um, we, we should be looking at bringing in people on work visas who don't currently meet the standards for the economic benefits they might bring to the country within the next couple of months. So we'll keep a close eye on that space. Now, we have to talk about um, the polls. We've had a couple of big polls in the last couple of weeks with, with quite different results. Uh, the latest uh, One News Comar Brunton poll um, showed National at 32% Labour in the uh, in the low 50s, 53%. So let's have a quick look at how that would shake down in terms of seats in the House. And Labour would have 67 seats if that were Election Day. National with 41, the Greens with 6, Act with 6, New Zealand first out. Ella, can Labour govern alone? Well, clearly, that's what the polls show. I mean, and I'm always aware that polls have a, a margin of error of 2 to 3% anyway. So none of us can really call this election, but the trends of the last few months clearly show that, you know, the country has gathered around the campfire and chosen to put their faith in one political party and some of the fringes are no longer viable. And, and that's very probably what's going to be, re you know, reflected at the elections. What do you think, Ben? That's the extraordinary thing about the recent polling. Normally when you see the major opposition party in disarray plummeting into low figures, that support is going to, to minor parties. That's what happened in 2002, 2014, 2017 before Jacinda Ardern took over from Andrew Little. Here, the opposition support has gone to the government. So the good news for National, I think, is that I think anywhere between about 25% and 40% for them in the polling is very, very soft. So, and, and on the polling that we've seen, you know, the two Colmar Brunton, uh, two uh, Red Research, that polling seems, you know, where that block goes seems to very much depend on the headlines of the day. When the government was struggling with the border, we saw a Todd Muller mini comeback to about 38% during the terrible times of strife with the National Party recently, down to 25%, mm. then kind of returning to the low 30s. So what you're saying is you think that if, if National can string together a good few weeks, then they should be in the mid to maybe high 30s? They should be able to get a significant part of these people who have probably voted National, you know, the last 10, 15 mm. years mm. Uh, back if they have a good headline, you know, the day before voting starts. Yeah. Let's talk about New Zealand first. They were at 2% again in the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll. Um, how do you think Winston Peters will react to that and how will that inform his behaviour throughout the campaign? Yeah, I, I mean, we've all said this, you know, that New Zealand First has this extraordinary capacity to come back from low polling prior to a number of elections. However, some, I think, of his grassroots support around issues around crime and immigration, you know, a lot of those issues are not so important at the moment and, and, and I think his constituency as you said is, is finding their way to a more conservative traditional mm. base like National. Yeah well I mean to Ben's point though it's interesting that National hasn't bled support into New Zealand first. National has, has bled support in, into, into Labour and I mean we've seen poll after poll um, showing you know from News Hub Read Research and, and One News Colmar Brunton polls showing New Zealand first around that 2% mark. How do you think Winston Peters will react Ben? 
Well, we can see how he's reacting, and it's not pretty. Three years ago, Winston Peters was refusing to participate in minor leaders' debates, saying that devalued his brand, New Zealand First was a major party. Now his strategy seems to be trying to pick fights on social media with ACT and the Greens, who are polling at 5%. Uh, he's really confining himself as a marginal player in this election. Um, we talk about their ability to come back, their, their ability to you know, never write them off. But remember, the two times they've been in government before, they have failed to clear the 5% threshold. There's still an SFO investigation to the New Zealand First Foundation to uh, you know, come back prior to the election. They're just not making any traction here. I think anyone who is betting the, the farm on Shane Jones winning Northland is, is going down the wrong route as well. Yeah, how important is that Northland seat for them? I mean, I think if they had any chance of winning, it would be crucial, but I don't think that they're even Shane in the Jones game. Shane Jones doesn't have a chance? You don't think? I, I think they have a better chance of getting over 5% than they do of Shane Jones right. winning Northland, and I don't think they have a great shot at getting over 5% right now. What about ACT? ACT at 5% in the latest poll. What do you, what do you put that down to, Alan? I Clearly Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben not being involved yeah, in that anymore. Right, <laughs> um, I, you know, there's been, there's been some high-profile issues, particularly around the Euthanasia Bill, which mm. has stimulated a lot of discussion um, that, that has probably raised their profile. But, you know, just being everywhere, being out and about, being seen, going to the opening of an envelope helps. Again, probably picking up some of that soft national support, Ben. The circuit breaker for ACT was the gun reform after Christchurch. Uh, in a rare display of sort of bipartisan statesmanship, Winston Peters and New Zealand first flew in behind the government on that. Mm. That left a lot of gun enthusiasts uh, pretty unhappy with the government. You know, not a lot in terms of the percentages in the electorate, but in terms of bringing up ACT from, you know, 0.8% into that 2 or 3% where they're a contender. Mm. Very crucial. Uh, they've continued to sort of build on that. So I don't actually think that they're picking up a, a significant part of the National Party vote. I think that they're operating in that area where the, the Conservatives were getting 4%, mm. uh, where New Zealand First were picking up some of their vote. Are the Greens in trouble? 5%, Ella? Again, it's a similar kind of thing. You know, they, they have tended to poll lower in past elections and then mm. come back. They've got a couple of high-profile MPs who are doing a lot in terms of media and social media. Um, and they've got that, you know, young vote. I mean, there's, this is the first election, I think, uh, in the new millennium where voters were born in the new millennium. Mm. And they are uh, from another country, they are from a globe, you know, they, the, they are literally looking at the world differently, seeing climate change, seeing, you know, international economics differently to us boomers. And um, I think that they're green. Yeah. OK, just before we go, Ben, can I ask you, your former colleague Matthew Hoot, and I see, has left, uh, has left National after a couple of months there as a strategist. Any, any inside word, any, any, anything from Hoots that you can tell us? I think Matthew has pretty similar views on Wellington to me, and any opportunity <laughs> to stop commuting there is probably a good one. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Ben Thomas and Ella Henry, we appreciate it. Coming up... Do you think you've ever been targeted online with misleading political information? You might be surprised. And what are the chances the Māori Party can win back one of the Māori seats? We've got a lot of hard-working um, brothers and sisters of Alpha Nonga that are in Labour. And yeah, they are caught up in working with a kaupapa that is mainstream.
TNR Koto, welcome back. So much of our information now is gleaned from social media and other online sources, and false information can spread with disturbing speed. In many overseas elections, foreign operators have tried to influence voters and undermine trust in democratic processes, and my next guest says it could happen here too. Curtis Barnes is the research director for Brainbox, which is a law and emerging technologies consultancy. He's co-authored a chapter on the globalised disinformation threat for a new book, and he's with us now. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Jack. I just want to begin with a little quote um, from the piece you've written here. The internet is gameable, you say. Internet success is driven by popularity and emotional stimulation. Its key metrics are not accuracy or reliability, but clicks, likes, shares, and time spent looking at the screen. From a psychological perspective, how vulnerable are human beings to misinformation on the internet? Exceptionally vulnerable. Um, the research suggests that we engage far more readily with things that make us angry, make us... Uh, provoked, ultimately we spend more time looking at the things that we don't really want to look at and sharing it with other people than the ones that we really want to read about. And we've seen some of the results of that overseas. Uh, you suggest that more than 70 countries have experienced targeted um, misinformation campaigns, particularly around elections. Would anyone target New Zealand voters? I think there's every reason that they would. Um, there's been certain political decisions made in the past uh, couple of years even that really make New Zealand a, a prime target. Um, these are decisions around the ban of oil and gas exploration, firearms decisions, uh, obviously our leadership in the Christchurch call to action against violence uh, extremism. These really are more than just practical decisions, they're symbolic decisions, they're statements to the world that New Zealand has a, a particular set of political beliefs um, which make us stand out as something of a, a paragon of Western democracy and that's something really to take down. So you think that we, <laughs> but, but you think that New Zealand would be seen as a prize of sorts? Certainly, I think there is a sense that if you could um, disrupt the New Zealand election, then you have really landed a big fish, for for want of a better term. Is there any way to tell whether or not we we have been the target, or our political uh, democracy has been the target of of misinformation campaigns? Well, it's particularly difficult to, to know whether we have or not because compared to other countries, we seem to put very little effort into monitoring whether or not what's going on in, across our various digital platforms, traditional media, etc., uh, is a coordinated effort and, and, and where it might be coming from. Other countries put a lot of time into this and it's not necessarily just at the government level. In fact, mm. it's, it's not always appropriate for government to be making determinations about whether or not something is disinformation. It's actually often at the civil society level and the private level. Uh, and, and at the moment, there's a real paucity of options and funding for uh, supporting work that determines whether or not New Zealand is um, currently being interfered with. Would the GCSB, our, our digital intelligence agency, be responsible from a, a government perspective? Uh, certainly, uh, but, but uh, of course, it's, it's essential that their work remains uh, hidden from the public eye because their methods... Uh, need to remain secret so mm -hmm. that they can remain effective. What I'm talking about uh, is, is, is a lack of options in New Zealand for uh, pushing back in the public sphere against information that is unreliable and, and might be originating from, from overseas sources. So what might a pushback in the public sphere look like? Well, it might be identifying uh, particular trends that are occurring within single platforms or across different platforms, even identifying which are the platforms most active with uh, dissident voices from overseas or agitation propaganda, who's behind them, what they're doing, and, and essentially just providing information to the public that gives them... Uh, a, 
something to, to lean on saying, hey, maybe that thing I saw today or that thing I shared is actually more than it appears to be. So an NGO of sorts that could identify misinformation in New Zealand and say, hey, everyone heads up. Well, it's, it's a model that's had success overseas, uh, that, uh, particularly uh, in, in America, there's no shortage of funding. But of course, America has also been uh, had good reason to really put a lot of yeah. effort into this, given that their election is probably disrupted in the last uh, last round. Do you think our election was our 2017 election? Uh, I don't know that it was, but of course, the Justice Committee included that within their investigation mm. recently. Uh, they, they wanted to know uh, not only whether or not those uh, elections were essentially sound, um, whether the fidelity to be maintained. But they also wanted to know about what's the risk of this in the future? What are the new technologies? What are the new methods by which uh, agents can essentially present as ordinary New Zealanders um, when, in fact, they're carrying out uh, alternative agendas? Is there any way, as an individual, I can work out if I am being targeted with misinformation? Uh, not without great effort, and that's the problem. If there was a, a shortcut, um, then it would be easy, but essentially it requires a, a large degree of media, media literacy and that takes energy and, and most of the time you're just scanning and skimming your phone, you share things that are interesting. In fact, really a large degree of it comes down to just being conscious that the things you're seeing online, you don't know where they come from. They might appear authentic, they might appear legitimate, but you have no idea who's pushing them and they could have agendas which are in, in fact completely tangential to what they're putting in front of your face. It's a great irony of the information age, isn't it? We all have access to information, far more information than we ever have before, and yet we can't trust it. Well, you can't trust all of it. Um, of, of course, the world we live in now is completely suspended, uh, maintained by the amount of information mm. that we're able to exchange. And, and for, for the most part, our communication avenues are, are likely very sound and we carry on our lives every day without getting deceived. Uh, but there is this, this risk at all times which requires you to be vigilant, and especially when the stakes are high. Are there particular platforms which we should be especially worried about? Uh, I, I don't know that there are particular platforms. Um, it's certainly prevalent across the wide range of social media. And then, of course, you've got traditional media. You've got radio stations uh, in New Zealand, for instance. There's uh, a, a, a great degree of critique of, of certain Chinese language radio stations. Um, in general, I think people want to be aware that, particularly in the social media domain, where mm. it's particularly driven by um, sort of reaction, uh, that these things can really catch on, and ev even in, when it comes from your family members and things like that. I mean, Facebook is, is, the, is the one that I would think of mm. immediately. You think about uh, different links being shared on Facebook and people commenting and liking and, and resharing and that sort of thing. If you are a foreign player looking to mess with another country's election, is it as simple as just buying ads on Facebook? How does it actually work? And, and are those systems becoming more advanced? Well, your methods could vary, and, and you've actually touched upon a really challenging thing, is that we do have some degree of, of allowance for propaganda in the sense of you can buy advertising, you can make political advertisements, you could even just be advertising for corporate products. So there is some grey area in there about what is and isn't acceptable conduct. But it might go beyond the purchasing of advertising. It could mm. be um, it could be the purchasing of people to do the labour work, the, 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 the grunt work of, of pushing and peddling your stuff online, or those people might be doing it voluntarily. That's the other thing. There's, there's uh, no end to the fountain of, of young trolls who are willing to carry on political agendas, uh, spread memes, work in the, in the sort of darker places of the internet to push uh, things that are edgy, but ultimately which might 
be serving higher political causes than they realise. Are the tech giants doing enough to try and stamp this out? I think the answer is no, but at the same time, they're faced with the challenges that it's not entirely clear exactly how you can stamp this out. I think it's an ongoing process of, of increased uh, critical and media awareness. Um, we wouldn't want the tech giants to become the arbiters of truth to us the same way we wouldn't want our government to step in and say, we'll become the arbiters of truth for you. Essentially, as citizens, if we don't want them to do that, we have to do better ourselves. Now, I think it is a collaborative effort, and some elements mm. can definitely be dealt with uh, more stridently, as has occurred with the Christchurch call to action, where an objectively uh, offensive and, 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 and serious problem was responded to quickly. But it, it's outside of those objective moments mm. when you're talking about things which are arguably wrong, et cetera. Now, there's no uh, requirement that everything you say has to be correct. So we wouldn't want a, some sort of rule online that you can only say true information. A month and a half until the New Zealand election then, for people watching this and feeling concerned about information they might be presented with, during that electioneering period, what would be your advice? Uh, stop and think, basically. Um, before you uh, share information, when you're reading information, mm -hmm. think very carefully about the providence of it. Uh, there, there's features that are now being brought in on Twitter and things like that, which will uh, ask you, hey, you haven't even read this article. Do you really want to pass it on to your peers? Those things are themselves gameable and unreliable. Ultimately, the, the, the best moderator of um, the flow of information are individuals themselves. So just be careful. Fantastic. Curtis, thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating subject. Let's have a quick look at the book we have been discussing. It's called Chanting Zeros and Ones, Digital Technology, Ethics and Policy in New Zealand, edited by Andrew Chen, published by Bridget Williams Books, available in good bookstores from Apopo tomorrow. Now, I've been on the road this week to consider the state of the Māori seats and whether or not the Māori Party can win their way back into Parliament. That story's next. Plus, this week's One Thing. Kia ora, welcome back. As we go to air, the Labour Party is launching its campaign for re-election in the seven Māori seats. Jacinda Ardern, Calvin Davis and members of the Labour Māori Caucus are at Wātea Marae in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. You'll remember the Prime Minister told Māori leaders at Waitangi to hold her government to account when it came to delivering for Tangata Whenua. So, has Labour delivered enough for Māori in order to hold all of the Māori seats, or could the Māori party make it back to Parliament? Is that Taranaki or is that Fuji? I'm pretty sure it's not Taranaki. <laughs> <laughs> at a second-hand shop on Whanganui's main drag, Māori party leader Debbie Ngārewa Packer is hunting for bargains collars that you take off and put around. What? Yeah, that's for collars. Yeah, like it's a dog collar? No, no, for human collars. Yeah. In Te Tai Hoauru, along the west coast of the North Island... You do sound like you're enjoying it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're not meant to. <laughs> She's hunting for votes too. The defining difference between Te Pāti Māori is that we want tangata whenua to be leading tangata whenua solutions and not caught up in universal approaches or strategies. In 2017, when Te Ururua Flavel lost the seat of Waiariki to Labour's Tamati Coffee, the Māori party was turfed from Parliament. In the time since, the party has changed leaders and undertaken a reckoning of sorts. We've had three years out of government and we've been able to spend that time reflecting, spend that time connecting and reconnecting and being able to, you know, I guess, pull together the tour of our values. 
John Tamahiri is perhaps the party's highest profile candidate. But in Tamaki Makoto, he's up against Greens co-leader Marama Davidson and incumbent Penny Henare. Therefore, the Māori party says to Taiho Audu as the best bet for winning back a seat. Well, they said that in 2014 and 2017, and I proved them wrong. Adrian Rudafe won the seat by a 1,000 votes at the last election, and in an electorate that covers hundreds of kilometres, he thinks there are only about 1,500 Māori electorate voters who haven't made up their minds. You basically have to run different election uh, uh, campaigns across those different parts of the electorate. So my campaign in Porirua is quite different to my campaign in South Waikato, say. It's incredibly hard for a party outside of Parliament to get any kind of traction. We've seen parties outside of Parliament that have had millions of dollars and try to get into Parliament and fail. <laughs> The Māori Party is open about its strategy. It's not campaigning for the party vote, and unlike in the past, it wouldn't do a deal with a national government. But polling is tough in the Māori electorates, and it's hard to gauge candidate support. Has Labour delivered for Māori? Well, absolutely. More so than the Māori Party uh, and National ever did in the past. And when I go through all the uh, areas in terms of more Māori judges than ever before, more Māori on district health boards, we've got kaupapa like Kohanga Reo, record investment. Willie Jackson is the co-leader of Labour's Māori caucus. I think of some of the big tensions from the last couple of years, the likes of Oranga Tamariki, Whanauora, there are some people who will say Labour hasn't delivered for Māori. Yes, there's been criticism, and, right, and rightfully so, and rightfully so, uh, but it's being fixed up. And so, so rightful criticism in terms of whānau order, again, the criticism's been there. We now have record funding in that area. Ihumato, well, who created Ihumato? The Māori Party and National Party. Do you not know the treaty? Between whānau order, Oranga Tamariki and the Ihumatau situation. None of those issues blew up quite enough. I think we were watching at Ihumatau, um, thinking, especially when the police went in there that night, um, that potentially it would turn into an explosive situation and one that would piss enough people off that they would form a political movement. But actually, the way that the government handled it, it's kind of died down a lot. Debbie Ngārewa-Packer says it was another issue that proved the value of independent Māori leadership. COVID-19. She helped manage iwi checkpoints and hand sanitizer production. Examples, she says, of grassroots solutions created by Māori for Māori, which wouldn't be achieved by Labour's MPs alone. We've got a lot of hard-working um, brothers and sisters of Alpha Nonga that are in Labour, and you know, they are caught up in working with a kaupapa that is mainstream. You know, you've seen the advancement in all the different areas, uh, and yet it's continual rubbish spouted out about, oh, you're too assimilated. The Māori Party was the most assimilated party here. They spout all this rubbish and not about not getting gains and tino rangatiratanga. There's no tino rangatiratanga here. You come down here, you bow to the speaker. The Māori Party used to do it all the time. It's not a tinoranga tiratanga environment. It's an environment where you've got to get the best deal. The Māori Party claimed to be an independent Māori voice. However, uh, the only way that they can get policy through is by compromising on other things. So what would be different this time around? That question is central to the Māori Party's aspirations. I can't believe that you're doing this, Sawari. Call me.
Yes. To win Te Taiho Aoru, Debbie Ngarewa Packer needs to convince voters that a Tangata Whenua party can remain both independent and influential, working within what is essentially a Pākehā system. That's the real um, critical part of the party Māori is that there is a rights and interest kaupapa, there is um, equity, there is um, horrific racism in Aotearoa, and until some of those things are addressed, a tangata whenua voice and a tangata whenua-led solution is, is really needed. Now, so you know, I pushed Willie Jackson on when a solution for Ihu Mātau might finally be announced. Of course, we've reported on Q&A before that it's pretty much good to go. It faces significant resistance from within New Zealand first, however. Willie Jackson says Labor's still committed to a solution and that the Prime Minister is still planning to visit Ihu Mātau but the timing will likely depend on the shape of the next government. OK, time now for The One Thing, where we ask different Kiwis the one thing they would change to make Aotearoa a better place. And this week it comes from the head girl at Mount Roskill Grammar School in Auckland. Bulla. My name is Pranayam and I'm the head girl for Mount Roskill Grammar School. One thing I would do to make Aotearoa a better place is implement compulsory financial education in secondary schools to enforce a thorough understanding of finances and money management for students. This could be a highly effective tool to reduce poverty and enable a financially successful future for upcoming generations as students can familiarise themselves with finances and be prepared to face the financial burdens of the real world. I believe that a vast majority of individuals living in financial stress in New Zealand has emanated from the lack of knowledge they've acquired around the topic of finances. The understanding of how money makes the world go round and is essentially a part of our everyday living. Therefore, it is important that we educate our tamariki on how to handle their finances, such as how to invest, how to save, and that how we spend our money is just as important as how much we earn. I believe with the right guidance and the right financial educations, the outlooks for our future will significantly change knowing that we are equipped with the right knowledge of how to handle the financial burdens of the real world. A great suggestion. All right, kua motu, that is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and nā mihi kia koutou ia koutou pānui. Thanks for your contributions. Marae is up next. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.